Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. essential to the image of God, our authority and vulnerability. And the reason they're important is that they're actually part of creativity. The God of the Bible is a creator God. And to create, you have to both act powerfully, but you also have to open yourself up to risk. That's vulnerability. And when you are a creator, you have to act on the one hand, but you also have to actually open yourself up to the possibility that your creating will not work out in the way you expect, or simply by creating multiple possibilities, you open yourself up to just not knowing exactly how it's going to turn out. You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Welcome to the program. You're listening to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and today I'm speaking with Andy Crouch. Among followers of Jesus, one could frequently hear the phrase Christian culture, conjuring up images of cross-laden jewelry and clothing, key rings with the Christian fish symbol, Christian books, and even Christian movies and video games. However, some followers of Jesus would argue that the phrase Christian culture is an oxymoron, that so-called Christian culture divides secular and sacred, creating an unhealthy and unfruitful separation from culture at large. Well, Andy Crouch is passionate about culture. He's passionate about human flourishing, and he's passionate about the kingdom of God, all of which we discuss in this two-part interview. As you'll discover, he's a brilliant but humble man with big ideas and an even bigger heart. Andy is executive editor of Christianity Today. He's a senior fellow at the International Justice Mission's IJM Institute, and he's the author of three books, including Playing God, Culture Making, and his most recent book, Strong and Weak. Andy's work and writing have been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, and numerous Christian publications. For fans of hip-hop, his most impressive claim to fame may be a shout-out to him in Lecrae's 2014 single, Nonfiction. For 10 years, Andy was a campus minister with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at Harvard. He studied classics at Cornell, and he received an MDiv from Boston University School of Theology. In addition to all of this, he's a classically trained musician who draws on pop, folk, rock, jazz, and gospel as he speaks and integrates music to audiences all around the world. He lives with his family in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania. So join me now in my conversation with Andy Crouch on Restoring the Soul.
Andy Crouch, welcome to Restoring the Soul, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. I am looking forward to this conversation. Me too. We're here in Breckenridge, Colorado at the Breckenridge Institute, and I wanted to talk with you about your newest book, Strong and Weak. But as I've been exposed to your writing, it seems to me that all three of your books, uh, Playing God, Strong and Weak, and then Culture Making, that there's a thread that runs through all of those. Hmm. And I don't know if that was intentional, um, but there's almost a trilogy aspect to those books. And the thread seems to be human flourishing. I'd like to hear you talk about what human flourishing is. What is flourishing, and why is that so important for a Christ follower? Hmm. It's it's interesting that you pick up on that. It it was not exactly an intentional thread. It was more something that I discovered. And I would connect that phrase, human flourishing, with another phrase that ends up being very important in all these books, which is the image of God. Uh, and, and, you know, flourishing for human beings is to be what we were created to be, which is image bearers of God being in the world what God wills for the world uh, with the capacities that that only we have. Other creatures, we're, we're like other creatures in many ways, but we are not like them in some very important ways. And those are the ways that really give us our image-bearing capacity. Um, so human flourishing is recovering this vocation to bear the image of God, coming to terms with our failure to live up to that vocation, and being restored to that position of kind of incredible authority uh, in God's world, as well as incredible vulnerability. And you're not talking about the vocation of flourishing in specifically religious ways. You're talking about everyday life and a whole variety of giftings. Right. And I mean, honestly, the uh, the whole idea that we could segment out or separate out a religious dimension of life and then other parts of life aren't religious is a very late, very modern, and very mistaken idea. Uh, all of life is meant to be lived before God, uh, for others, for the world, with the empowering of God's Spirit, in the, you know, practicing the presence of God. So, yeah, and, you know, when I started um, this journey of writing um, with culture making, I really was trying to bring our imagination of culture back into that, you could call it that religious context, but it's really just putting it back in its proper place, which is in relationship with God. Uh, But yes, absolutely. This is not just about your devotional life. It's not just about that inward sense of spiritual life. It's about everything you do and make um, in your day-to-day work, in your neighborhood, in your home, uh, as well as the things that are kind of explicitly liturgical or religious, which are also part of a whole human life. So those compartments between sacred and secular, those are really not only false compartments, but you're saying they're they're pretty new on the landscape of Christianity. Quite new. I, and really, I mean, they are sort of in roughly Enlightenment era separations, right? Uh, the idea that there was this uh, space that could be carved out where, where we didn't need God. Uh, initially a kind of a, a scientific space. And there, there's reasons that in, that when we do science day to day, we don't um, invoke God. But it's amazing how much even of uh, the scientific story was led by people who had a profound sense of worship in what they do. And actually, even scientists who don't claim any belief in God feel uh, feel wonder, feel a sense of responsibility, feel the moral kind of freight of what they're doing, whether it's genetic research or nuclear, you know, creating uh, nuclear bombs. Um, there's this sense of responsibility and weightiness to it that goes way beyond 
uh, what we would normally think of as just secular. So yeah, the secular sacred distinction um, is a really recent idea that's a very thin idea and a very bad idea. <laughs> it was always meant to go together. Uh, and actually, when we go deep in our own lives, I think we realize um, all the most important things in our lives, whether we name them this way or not, are not secular in some um uh, that's not an adequate way to describe them. They, they, they are freighted with sacredness. In your book, Strong and Weak, you quote what's now become a somewhat popular quote by Irenaeus, the glory of God is man fully alive. Yes. You actually quote the Latin for that, which I was pretty <laughs> impressed by. Um, and, and, and you equate flourishing with that idea of being fully alive. Can we go back for a minute, and can you give examples of what flourishing might look like in a non-religious context? Oh, sure. Well, flourishing is, uh, by the way, not something that just applies to human beings. It's actually, I think, meant to apply to all of creation. Um, and it's when anything or person or creature um, is developed in such a way that all of its possibilities come to the surface. So um, I like to think about two very basic components of culture, which are bread and wine. Uh, so they start with natural components, uh, wheat and grapes. Let's just think about wine for the moment. Um, grapes in, in and of themselves, uh, well, it, let's say a wild grape um, grows to a certain amount of sweetness and a certain size. But if human beings cultivate that grape and um, expose it actually to more stress by putting it up on a trellis where it's exposed to sun and wind and rain and so forth, it will actually grow and become more flavorful than it would out in the wild, by and large, if it's well cultivated. And then we take it and we go through this very complex cultivating process of fermentation and you know allowing the yeast to interact with the sugars and so forth. And the flavors that were latent in that grape, which the people who really know this stuff say you can even taste the ground that the grape was grown in or that the grapevine was growing in. All of those flavors, if the wine is well-made, come to expression in this unbelievable complexity of a really great glass of wine. Now, not all grapes, for, you know, first of all, if you, you know, if you or I, I'm guessing, I'm guessing you're not a vintner. I'm not. I'm, <laughs> I'm not. certainly not. Nor sommelier. Right. So if we try to do it, it's not going to taste that good. Like, you know, how when your friends invite you over, like, uh, I think beer making is, is maybe the more popular version right now because everybody can do it in their basement. And when your friend invites you over for his first effort at homebrew beer, I mean, just be prepared. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably not going to be that good. Yeah. So that's not flourishing, right? I mean, all the ingredients may be there. Uh, the grapes may be there in the case of winemaking. The hops and the barley may be there in the case, in the case of uh, beer making. But it actually takes tremendous skill to assess and figure out what could this become and if you do it with all that skill, which really requires literally generations of accumulated knowledge, no one could figure it out on their own in one, in one lifetime. Then we have the, the glory of human culture, which is these things that we're able to take the raw materials, if you will, of creation, which are good in, in and of themselves, and actually develop them in a way that exposes all the possibility that was there. So that would be one picture of flourishing. Now, in one way, that has nothing to do with religion or the sacred in another way it has everything to do with absolutely it. yeah especially back to your reference to the image of god and our vocation to make that known exactly. because what are those possibilities uh that could come about for the human soul and for our, our uh i hate to use the word potential yes uh well but I, 
I, why do you hate to use the word potential? I think that that word uh, in, in, in psychological yeah. clinical circles, you know, human potential movement, that that's been associated sometimes with godlessness. So right. I'll probably well, need, to, what you mean. Yeah, need yeah, to look yeah. at my own fear of, or anxiety of that word. <laughs> right. But uh, in another way, uh, I mean, maybe we could use the word possibility. The world is latent with possibility. We ourselves are latent with possibility. There are capacities we have that that if we don't, if we don't work at developing them and actually someone else and many someone else's don't come alongside us and help us develop them, they will remain latent. But they're meant to come to full expression, just like the little seed is meant to become a tree or a plant or whatever. And to me, that's what flourishing is about. So this then segues into something you wrote in Strong and Weak. Uh, you wrote, two questions haunt every human life and every human community. The first, what are we meant to be? This idea of possibility. And my own vocation has been kind of obsessed with practicing the answer to the second question you raised. The second question you wrote, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Um, So will you describe the idea of this paradox between what we're meant to be and how far we are from it, kind of the reality and the vision and what stands in the way? Yeah, it, it struck me as I was, you know, one of the hardest things about writing a book is the first lines. Like, how do you get into this in an adequate way? And it struck me that this is a, such a striking pair of things that we all feel. We all feel that we have some purpose and that we don't know exactly what it is. There's this kind of cloudedness to our purpose. Uh, and yet we're, we're certain it's there and we're certain it's more than we currently experience. And then we also have this sense of gap between where we, even what we know of our purpose. Like, so there's a lot I don't know about my purpose, but there are some things I do know. I'm called to be a writer. I'm called to be a musician. I'm called to be a husband. I'm called to be a father, among many other things. And in every one of those areas, I have this profound sense of gap between what I'm, what I know I could be even, let alone what I'm meant to be and where I, I actually am. And I think this is what it is to be human, uh, is to be both aware of that purpose and aware of that gap. And in a way, you could think of the gospel, the kind of Christian story of salvation in its broadest sense, as giving full definition to that first question. And that in specifically in Jesus, but also in the whole story of Scripture, we get a picture of what human beings are meant to be. And we get a very powerful account of what's gone wrong. Uh, I think the most compelling account of what's gone wrong. And we get we are offered uh, a path back to and into what we were meant to be. And what's gone wrong, in a word, is that the image has been lost. And so we who were meant to bear the image of God replaced the glory of God, which was resident in image bearers, with what um, I think the most powerful word for a, a lost or discarded or false image is an idol. So the image bearers have been replaced by idols in the world. So these creatures who were invested by God with memory, reason, skill, ability to communicate, ability to speak, hear, empathize, interact, we replaced that incredible vocation with these things that come out of creation, some of which are just natural things that we started to worship, or some of which are created things. 
and they have none of our capacities. They, they're just things. They don't talk. You know, the prophets have these great kind of litanies of critique of, of idols. Uh, they don't talk. They don't listen. They don't actually act. They don't feel. Um, you have to carry them around. And yet we turned our worship to these things and invested our hopes in these things uh, actually as an escape from our vocation, which was to actually bear the image of God. And the way that you describe the image of God is this paradox Hmm. of a combination of two things, obviously, that seem contradictory, but strength and weakness. And you you chip away at that. I loved in the book uh, a lot of different ways, using a lot of different metaphors, even even different words, authority and vulnerability, for example. But talk about how we um, how the the strength and weakness either becomes lopsided or that combination gets lost. Yeah. So, so I think essential to the image of God and maybe the most essential things, I don't know how I could be sure of that, (laughs) but I think two very essential things are authority and vulnerability. And the reason they're important is that they're actually part of creativity. So God, the, the God of the Bible is a creator God. And to create, you have to both act powerfully, that would be authority or strength, but you also have to open yourself up to risk. That's vulnerability. I think of vulnerability as basically just exposure to meaningful risk. So I'm vulnerable when something that I care about is at stake. Um, We sometimes use vulnerable in a more narrow sense to mean emotionally transparent or honest, and that could be a real risk, but there's lots of other ways to be vulnerable, actually. (laughs) And when you are a creator... Uh, you, you have to act on the one hand, but you also have to actually open yourself up to the possibility that your, your creating will not work out in the way you expect, or simply by creating multiple possibilities, you open yourself up to just not knowing exactly how it's going to turn out. Which seems ironic that even that is part of the image of God. Yes. That God is vulnerable. Yes. And there's a lot of resistance to that. Yeah. Um, the Christian tradition, especially certain parts of it, uh, say the Reformed Protestant tradition, have really stressed the authority or sovereignty of God. But we haven't talked about as much about the way that God creates a world with degrees of freedom in it, freedom from the creator's direct um, management, you might say. And one of the ways I, I see this, uh, in Genesis 1, there's the two times. Uh, when it talks about the creatures of the earth teeming or swarming, same word in Hebrew, but translated either teeming or swarming in, in English. And when you think about um, the, the flocking behavior of birds or the schooling behavior of fish uh, or the t- swarming of bees, uh, and you think about how overwhelming it is to see a, uh, like, you know how, what, what do they call it when bees leave their, um, their hive and like head out? Scary. <laughs> yeah, like they'll, sometimes, sometimes I think it's when the queen dies. I don't know. Yeah, you know, you've seen these pictures, like this massive collectivity of bees that yes. are heading. Sometimes they don't even know where they're going. Right? I mean, maybe called swarming. I don't remember. Huh. There's a name for it. Um, is that a machine-like rule-governed? Uh, process. I would say no. I would say that's this sort of, it's, it's what we call an emerge, an emergent process. It, it is based on certain fundamental rules in a sense or behaviors of bees, but the outcome of it is completely beyond prediction. Like which way is that school of fish going to turn next? Which way of that flock is that flock of birds going to kind of swirl and turn? And God creates a world with that kind of openness to possibility. Um, 
without which you don't end up with creatures like us who actually have profound freedom of will. Uh, you know, collectivities of creatures like bees and fish have a, have a certain kind of indeterminateness, but they're not really free fully in the way we are, but we're deeply free. We're free enough to actually reject the creator. We're free enough to actually crucify the creator's uh, son. And that's the vulnerability of God. Uh, And it's actually the vulnerability of a true creation that actually has within it possibility that you have to have freedom in the system for it to be expressed. We We want one without the other. We want the capacity to act, but we are very nervous about opening up possibilities that we don't control. Uh, and that's why we make this choice to ha- try to have authority without vulnerability. But that's not the true image of God. Other than doctrine that's been passed down, why do you suppose uh, we as humans are, are so drawn to the authority as opposed to mm-hmm. the vulnerability side of God when the vulnerability aspect is something that is— uh, spiritually aesthetically just so beautiful yeah yes why why do we fear and avoid the vulnerability i i mean mm, i i'm not sure i know i i think it's just a we can come back to that for another interview yeah it's a fact of human life um psychologists see it in in what we call loss aversion, that we actually fear loss much more than we pursue gain. Uh, and, and if you look at, you can, you can create these very clever experiments where you give people a chance either to gain a lot or to lose a little, and they would rather not lose a little than gain a lot. And it just seems to be baked into how human beings are. Why did we, you know, and it goes all the way back to the garden when the serpent says to the woman and the man, You'll be like God and you shall not surely die, which is to say you'll have lots of authority, but you're not as vulnerable as God has said. The serpent is sort of questioning, yeah. uh, did God really say you're going to die, which is vulnerability? And, and they're like, oh, maybe not. Why did that sound so appealing to them? I, I'm not sure I know. I just know it's true yeah, of all but, of us. But there it is, uh, authority without vulnerability. Exactly. And that, that's, that's played out. That's the serpent's promise. That's every idol's promise. That's what we secretly want. Um, it, it never works because the whole cosmos doesn't work that way. The cosmos was created by a God who wanted, who chose both and who even ultimately is willing to embrace the vulnerability of death, which was not part of the divine life. So let's go back to a minute to your definition of an idol. I mm. think you said an idol is a lost image. Right. Or a distorted image. It's something that, that claims to give us access to what we want and that God intends for us, authority, but without vulnerability. Uh, so an idol is anything, and it's amazing how many things can step into this role in every human life and, and in human history, um, that we think, if I orient my life around this and devote my life to this, uh, I will have all the authority I want with none of the vulnerability I fear. So other words for authority, the way you're describing it in the book might be power control. Yes. And well, control is the best word because control actually describes a situation where I have authority without risk. When I, when I have control, um, in some situation I can act and know that what I want to have happen will happen. And in very small systems, you can have control. Uh, so you can build a machine that every time you turn the crank, the exact same thing happens. The problem is, um, that describes machines, but it doesn't describe my life. doesn't describe my relationships. So I want, sometimes I want my relationships to be machine like, uh, 
like as a parent, right? I want to be able to know that when I call my kids to dinner, they will come. Wouldn't it be great if my kids were dinner attending machines? <laughs> who would <laughs> every you know, time precisely at the moment I say come to dinner, they'd come. But in fact, they do not, and they're unpredictable. Like some days they come, some days they don't, and. And so that's frustrating to me. And so I start to think, I wonder if there's some way I could control this situation. And at that moment, I start turning to, very broadly speaking, idols. I don't know exactly how I do that with my kids, but certainly in the broader areas of my life where I feel out of control because I am out of control. If there's something I can latch onto and I think, ooh, if I build my life around this, I'll have the control I want. That's very powerful. So implicit in what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is that even good things can become idols. They're all good things, actually. Or okay. at least the, the most powerful idols are good things. Okay. Tell so, me what you mean by that. Well, uh, you know, so I think about... Um, uh, there are some idols that actually reveal their limits very quickly, and those tend to be bad bad idols. Uh, so crystal meth, the first time you use it, I hear, <laughs> will give you an unbelievably inflated sense of power and ecstasy. Um and, and take away all of your vulnerability. But it degrades very quickly. So we think of crystal meth as a bad thing because uh, we see very quickly the, the effects it has on those who, who get caught up in it. But uh, there are really good things that actually will go through the same de- degrading process, but it takes way longer. Um, so, uh, I mean, in some ways, the ultimate example is money. Uh, money is a good thing. It's a medium of assessing, assigning, and exchanging value. And and we need to be able to assess, assign, and exchange value. Uh, and it it corresponds it, at its best to real wealth, that is real goodness in the world. But it's also the most powerful idol. If you start thinking, if I have enough money, I'll have all the authority I want and none of the vulnerability I fear. Uh, that good thing will become for you or perhaps for a whole society that builds itself around this, um, an idol that initially seems to do pretty well. Like initially you can get a lot of that authority, that authority that you want, but over time it's going to start taking over your life and we become enslaved to these things. Uh, and they, they start to drive us and they deliver less and less of what they promise. So the best, the best idols in the sense of the idols that are most effective in our lives are actually things that start out being good, um, but that we, we look to them for control and then they, they gradually suck us in, demand more and more, deliver less and less until eventually they demand everything and deliver nothing. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at RestoringTheSoul.com. 